If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am very excited to welcome Professor Elsa Elfan to the show today. Professor Fan is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Webster University. Today, we are discussing her new book, Commodities of Care, The Business of HIV Testing in China, which was published in 2021 with the University of Minnesota Press. Professor Fan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. What was the inspiration for this book? So this book really came together out of a number of intersecting interests drawn both from my academic and my non-academic life. So Before I went to graduate school, I actually had a career in the nonprofit development industry, international development. And so there, metrics were always a thing, right? We were always developing indicators and targets. We were always implementing results-based management. And it was just sort of this taken-for-granted practice that people didn't really question. It was just something that we did. And any conversations that we did have was about which metrics to use, but there weren't really any questions about the actual utility of these metrics, how we were counting, what we were counting, what they were doing. So the year that I was accepted into graduate school, I had just started a new job. I think I was like four days into the job and the graduate school acceptance came in. And I decided to defer graduate school for a year because I wanted to stay in this job. Um, And it turned out to be a really productive decision because in my work, I started to see all of these shifts happening in the industry whereby metrics were becoming more and more prominent. And I was able to see how these metrics were actually impacting our everyday practices, how it was actually impacting my work on an everyday um, an everyday level. So for example, we were starting to get asked to consider the cost effectiveness of our, deci- of our decisions, right? How many people were being impacted by X amount of dollars we spent? When we were being asked to show returns on investments, Um, you know, I was thinking, how do I demonstrate a quantitative return on something like providing critical services to vulnerable populations? Or how do I decide between supporting an organization that gives me really good numbers against an organization that gives maybe more comprehensive services, but gives me fewer numbers, right? And so I was really trying to navigate the space of applying business logics to a nonprofit setting and starting to use concepts like return on investment to describe like a grassroots organization in India providing educational services to homeless people, right? There was just a disconnect there. And so I knew something was happening. 
And I think at the time, I just, I didn't have the conceptual language to really think through it, but I was really interested in trying to unpack how these practices were reshaping, not just how I was doing my work, but how they were really reorganizing what mattered and what counted in a broader scheme of things. And I should mention that this was happening everywhere across the nonprofit sector. It wasn't just my organization. And if you didn't jump on the bandwagon, then you risked being left behind by donors because this was becoming more and more prominent. Um, And so you had a lot of organizations embracing terms like social entrepreneurship, innovation, value for money, and integrating these concepts into their work. And I think for me, the concern was for the organizations that didn't meet these parameters, right? So an organization that might not be considered innovative per se, um, or demonstrate enough of a return on an investment, but they were providing really critical services to a community that needed it, basic things like education or housing and food. And for these types of organizations, I just found myself working harder and harder and harder to justify support for them because they weren't sort of meeting these metrics that we were really putting importance on. So those experiences really were pivotal for informing my academic interests that sort of led to this book. Um, When I started graduate school, I continued to maintain my ties to the nonprofit industry because at the time I had intended to go back to that industry after my PhD. Um, And I wanted to sort of maintain my ties and remain involved. So I became involved with an organization that provided services to HIV affected HIV affected communities in China and who later then refined their focus exclusively on men who have sex with men. But I had lived and worked in China for years, so I had deep ties to the region. And so when I was working with this group, I sometimes traveled with them to visit their grantees and their partners. And through them, I came to learn more about how HIV was actually affecting men who have sex with men, this particular population. And I saw firsthand the different kinds of social and cultural challenges that these men were facing in their everyday lives. So all of these things sort of came together for me during my field work. I happened to get involved at a time where men who have sex with men or MSM became a key population for the public health community in China. And at the time, the leading route of transmission had shifted from people who inject drugs to sexual contact. And this drew increased attention to the role of MSM in the epidemic in China. Plus, there was a whole influx of international funding coming in from donors who channeled their money into targeting MSM in HIV intervention. So For example, the Global Fund had scaled up their money um, and support for this population. The Health Fund, which is an international organization that I worked with, adopted performance-based financing to expand MSM testing, and they had a huge MSM testing initiative. And AIDS in China Fund is another group I worked with. They also shifted their priority to MSM. So during the time of my fieldwork, testing MSM really became the sort of key strategy par excellence to address and control Um, the epidemic in China. And most of these organizations had a component of MSM testing, but they also utilized in some form or another metrics, right, to measure outcomes and account for their money. So the health fund, for example, with their performance-based financing, tied monetary incentives to the delivery of um, specific targets and indicators. And grantees had to meet these targets if they wanted to get funding. So A lot of the things that I had seen in my non-academic life, I was now watching play out in these global health spaces. And I was able to sort of analyze them from different perspectives, right? Because I had been on sort of both sides of the fence of these things. Um, 
So I became really interested in tracking what these practices were actually doing on the ground, right? How they were redefining the parameters of care, but also how they were remaking persons. They were remaking communities in really unexpected, um, and I would even say deeply meaningful ways. Um, And I think that's the thing that surprised me the most is that it wasn't just that there were all of these things happening around counting and metrics that reorganized institutional practices. I think that's a given, but that these things could also enable new subjectivities to be formed and new ways for men to sort of think about themselves and and reimagine their lives. So, yeah, that's sort of how this book came together. Could you elaborate a little bit on what audience you have in mind for this book? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. I think for me, because I came from this very sort of non-academic background and transitioned into academia, um, I really envisioned this book to be accessible to a greater public. So, excuse me, obviously, I'd love for anthropologists to read it. And specifically, I would love for anthropology students to read it, right, undergraduate in particular. But I also hoped that um, people working in global health spaces, so NGOs, community organizations, um, donors even, right, global health donors who are involved in um, funding and supporting these kinds of interventions, um, public health professionals, um, would also ha- um, would also read it, that it would be accessible to them. Because I think many of the things that I talk about in this book, um, they're not new, right? And that's something that I should point out. Um, I know in anthropology, there's currency always placed on what's new about it. Um, metrics and the kinds of practices that I'm talking about in this book are not new. So I was less interested in the newness of it, but I was really interested in what these things were doing, right? Um, in unexpected ways, the kinds of unexpected things that come out, and also how these things travel. And so um, I really hope that a wider audience of global health um, and public health people, of students, of medical anthropologists um, in industry spaces will have access to this book, specifically because these are the people who are actually involved in designing and implementing these types of interventions. And I think it's always important to understand how these interventions play out on the ground, right? Sometimes in ways that we don't necessarily expect them to, um, but to also perhaps have a moment of reflection when they're sort of designing these programs and thinking about what exactly are we doing and, and you know, how can we do it better? In the introduction, you write that Euro-American notions of sexuality that inform most international interventions are especially ill-suited to the Chinese context. Why is that? So I think that in many Euro-American contexts, sexuality tends to be organized around sort of discrete categories, right? Heterosexual, homosexual, and it exists in a domain that is separate from, say, your family or other parts of your life. And in these contexts, sexuality is is really underpinned by this notion of an autonomous, independent person. And sexual identity, in many aspects, tends to be relatively central to one's personhood. But whereas in China, personhood tends to be organized around social relations, notably your family. And men have very specific 
roles in society, which is to carry on your lineage through your children. So in many ways, your sexuality in China is ancillary to your social role as a husband and as a father and as a son. And being a good son ultimately means becoming a, uh, becoming a father and fulfilling that social role. Because historically in China, sexuality has always deeply been tied to your kinship systems. And these ties continue to be really, really important. So I, I remember this particular incident that happened once um, during my field work. I was attending a public workshop that was organized by the Chinese branch of PFLAG, you know, the parents and lesbians of parents and friends of lesbians and gays. And so um, in Southern China, a Chinese woman started her own branch of this organization. And so they held this meeting um, for parents and their children as a way to sort of share experiences um, and for parents to share their stories with others in hopes of helping other parents accept their children and sharing their experiences of it. And at one point, um, a mother who came with her son stood up and shared her story. And she said, after learning that her son was gay, her first thought was, this is my only son. What if he doesn't give me grandchildren? That was her first thought. And she actually considered asking him to marry a woman, have a child, and then divorce the woman, because at least then she would have a grandchild. And as she was telling the story, she admitted to the audience that she now realizes how wrong her thinking was. But at the time, her only concern was having a grandchild, regardless of her son's sexual preference. She wasn't necessarily thinking at the moment about how that decision would affect the woman. So it was a really sort of reflective moment for her. And I think she shared that as an example of how she came to accept her son. But as I was listening to her, I actually thought that her story was deeply honest, right? Um, because it was something that many Chinese parents could relate to, but I suspect that very few American parents could relate to. And to this woman, it mattered less that her son was gay and more that he might not give her a grandchild and fulfill his social obligation. So I think this story speaks to sort of how sexuality works differently in a context where a man is defined more by his social role than his sexual one, and how those considerations actually then shape the kinds of sexual decisions that he makes in his own life. So it's very common in China for men who have sex with men to marry women and live publicly as heterosexual men because of that social obligation. And in fact, some of the most vocal activists I had met in my fieldwork had this arrangement, right? And it was perfectly acceptable and perfectly compatible with everything that they were doing. Whereas I think to other audiences that might be problematic for, for many reasons. But in China, sexuality and their marriages aren't necessarily incompatible things for Chinese MSM. So I think with international interventions, there's sometimes, there's sometimes the assumption that your sexual identity is concordant with your sexual practices and your sexual desires, which isn't always um, the case in a place like China. And this isn't to say that there aren't people who do take up these identities or for whom there is that concordance. There absolutely are. And it is worth noting that the way we think about sexuality today, both in the U.S. and in China, are changing dramatically. Right. But um, at least at the time of my fieldwork, sexuality was not imagined the same, nor did it say nor did it serve the same purpose in China as it might in other contexts. 
And for that reason, I think interventions that assume a kind of discrete sexuality doesn't necessarily translate into a place where sexual identities are really secondary to your social and your cultural identities. Jumping off of this, uh, chapter two is called Making Up and Making Available MSM in China. Can you explain what you mean by making up and making available? Yeah, so the idea of making up MSM was really inspired by Ian Hacking, where he talks about um, how practices of enumeration make up new kinds of people. And it is this process of counting and classifying whereby people start to then inhabit these categories, right? They come to relate themselves, relate to themselves in new ways and they find new ways of being. So in the book, I talk about how making up MSM really emerged out of a need to count these men in testing initiatives because testing had become sort of key intervention. And when I say that I'm referring to two interrelated things here. One is the process of cultivating a selfhood by which men who have sex with men come to recognize and accept their same-sex desires and their HIV risk as part of their sexual practices as MSM, right? Um, and it's it's not necessarily about creating this MSM identity per se. Um, so it's not about having men say, I am MSM, right? But it is more about creating these subjectivities where men are compelled to get tested voluntarily because they take up these new subjectivities. And by doing this, you're also creating new ways for men to be. It wasn't just saying, oh, I'm at risk for HIV because I have sex with other men. It's also saying, because I am a man who has sex with other men and I am at risk for HIV, I should also get tested, right? So when men get tested voluntarily, when they can be mobilized to get tested, that then in turn also makes them countable, right? It makes them visible. It makes them identifiable bureaucratically in a way that they weren't able to be before. So this countability is the second thing I mean when I talk about making up MSM. As I mentioned earlier, many Chinese MSM live heterosexual lives. They travel very easily between heterosexual and homosexual spaces, um, making it difficult to identify them. And that's always been a key public health challenge to reaching this population for HIV testing. These men don't necessarily see themselves at risk. They don't necessarily identify as or with any same-sex categories, much less MSM, which is a global health category that was designed for epidemiological surveillance. And they aren't necessarily part of any kind of same-sex communities, right? They live publicly heterosexual lives. So they were, for all intents and purposes, an invisible and an uncountable population for which there is very little data about, especially in relation to HIV. So for the public health community, this meant that they had no idea how widespread the epidemic was within this population. And MSM had always been seen as a sort of vector, right? They also always had the capacity to transmit to men and women. And so this was a huge public health concern. So in this sense, making up MSM was also about making MS bodies count and counting MSM bodies. So this making up became, I think, especially important in the context of performance-based financing, 
which was used in a lot of the MSM testing initiatives, um, including by the Health Fund and the Chinese CDC, a lot of public health agencies. So the way this worked was that monetary incentives were tied to the delivery of specific targets. So for example, for every person that you refer to get tested for HIV, you would get, say, $50 or something. And for every person you helped to start initiate treatment, you would get $150. Or for every person you would take through the process of getting CD4 tested, you would get $75 and so on. You get the idea. So you have these very specific targets and um, incentives attached to them. So community organizations were often um, tasked with mobilizing men and doing these activities. And for them, if they didn't meet these targets, then they risk not getting any contracts in the future because they had to meet specific targets. And so their financial sustainability was really tied to meeting these targets. At the same time, this mechanism was actually a way for donors to account for how their money was spent. They could say they did 100 tests, I spent this much money, right? And it enabled them to calculate value for money, right? Maximizing the health impact for every dollar spent. So for instance, it cost us it cost us X amount of dollars for every HIV positive case we found, right? So these calculations were important because they informed how donors made their decisions of who to fund. And this is what the Global Fund does on an international scale. If a recipient country shows low performance, the Global Fund says, we're going to redirect our money towards recipients that deliver better outcomes and more cost effectiveness. So this is actually at what one point what happened with sex workers. Um, the health fund originally had sex workers as part of their testing initiatives. But over time, they started noticing that there were very few HIV positive cases being detected among sex workers. And so when they did a review, they basically decided to remove sex workers from the testing initiatives because they said, well, the amount of money we're spending to detect one HIV case in this population was way more than the money we were spending to detect way more HIV positive cases in MSM, right? And so it became a matter of sort of what was more cost effective and where we want to redirect our resources, which makes funny, which makes sense from a public health standpoint. But what this meant is that for MSM and these community organizations to continue receiving donor support, they needed to continue to show good value for money or run the risk that they would get cut off from international support. Um, and this also meant that they needed to have MSM to test, right? And so all of this is to say that making up MSM and making them available for testing, meaning having these men come to see themselves as part of this risk group and be compelled to voluntarily get tested, these men are now made available, not just for testing, but also as data points for epidemiological surveillance, as financial units to measure cost-effectiveness and value for money, as commodities that can be transacted for monetary incentives, or as political capital to safeguard future contracts for community organizations. Um, but at the same time, it also created new ways for men to imagine themselves and their lives because it did enable new communities and new social support networks to be forged. And I think that was deeply meaningful to the men involved. Um, so sort of the making up and making available did all of these things um, 
in, I think, sort of expected and yet at the same time unexpected ways. And you go into such detail on this in chapter two. It's it's a, It was one of my favorite chapters. I really enjoyed uh, getting into the depths of how all of this occurs. Thank you. One thing you've talked about already, but I maybe you could touch on it a little bit more, is why MSM became such an important group for HIV testing in China. Right. I think that, I, I think that there are multiple parts to this question. Um, so first is, how did MSM become an important group to the epidemic more broadly in China, right? So historically, MSM have largely been marginalized from HIV interventions, partly due to the lack of data and partly because they were a difficult to reach population. And these things go hand in hand, right? You have no data because they're hard to reach, they're hard to reach, so you have no data. So for the most part, um, for the longest time, MSM didn't really garner the attention of the Chinese government, which means there were very few resources sent their way. I think it wasn't even until 2003 that this population was integrated into the surveillance sites. So they were sort of excluded for the first few years and there was no surveillance data on them. Um, but the community itself had been advocating for years, trying to alert the government and public health officials to growing rates, um, increasing rates of HIV. But, you know, um, it fell on deaf ears, right? Because they just weren't sort of taken seriously. So it wasn't until the epidemic itself pivoted in the mid 2000s in China, where sexual transmission overtook drug use as the leading transmission route, that the government actually started to pay attention to MSM, because now they were starting to see more and more rates among MSM. Um, And public health experts, in particular, were worried about the capacity for this group to transition HIV into a generalized epidemic. So most of the public health people that I spoke to believed that the sexual transmission was actually being driven by MSM, right? Even though the data was sort of saying it was um, heterosexual contact, they believed that it was being driven by MSM. And they presumed that most of these numbers indicating heterosexual transmission were actually men who have sex with men that were, quote unquote, hiding right, their sexual practices, as one person told me. So another factor in bringing MSM to national attention is actually the role of global health donors. So for years, international funders made really important inroads into galvanizing the government into taking the epidemic seriously. And some of the earliest donors to address MSM included the UK's Department for International Development, or DFID, And later, the Gates Foundation supported a nationwide survey of MSM. So they were really um, key drivers in sort of bringing MSM into national attention. And the Global Fund had actually been a key player in China's HIV efforts, and they included early on MSM into their funding cycle. So all of these things sort of converged to really thrust MSM into the foreground of the epidemic itself. So that sort of leads to the second part, which is how testing... Um, as an intervention, became important to HIV. So in general, China has historically had very abysmal testing rates, right, among the general population, but especially among MSM for many reasons. Um, Most of the testing is done by government agencies, and there's historically been a really strong history of distrust between this community and the government. Um, But there were also other things like 
low risk perception rates, confidentiality concerns, stigma. Um, and so that really um, was those were barriers to men going to get tested in, in any of these sites. Um, but so not only were the testing rates among MSM low, but studies also showed that very few men knew their HIV status as well. And this is what really concerned public health experts because they weren't getting tested. Some of the earlier interventions that involved MSM really came from the community itself. So they were doing things like telephone hotlines or venue-based activities, workshops, peer-based education, and condom promotion. That was a really big one. Everyone was doing condom promotion. But these activities offered very little substantive data in terms of how widespread HIV was within the community. Um, they couldn't tell public health experts how many men were HIV positive, how many knew their HIV status, how many were on treatment. And so having said all that, I think MSM became an important group for testing because testing became a tool that could remedy all these problems if it could be appropriately scaled up within this population, right? Because for one, testing can make MSM knowable and countable in ways that had not been possible before. So here you have a population that, for all intents and purposes, had remained marginal and hidden from the mainstream. And now you have an instrument that is able to elicit all this information about them, medical and personal and sexual and bureaucratic. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing. But at the same time, testing also had the capacity to diagnose and measure, right? It can tell you things like, it can give you data about how many people are HIV positive. I tested 100 people and 15 people tested positive. It can be used to calculate cost effectiveness. I spent X amount of dollars per HIV diagnosis. It can tell you how many people know their status. I tested 100 people, 15 people came back and knew of their status. It can help you track the number of people that started treatment after testing positive. So again, you're making MSM knowable in all of these different ways. So I think that's why MSM became so important to, to, to these testing initiatives. But I also want to mention how I think testing has been really important to MSM also, right? So I spent a lot of time with Jonah, who is the director of AIDS in China Fund, which is one of the organizations that I worked with. And I think I mentioned earlier, they also implement, implemented MSM testing initiatives. But unlike the health fund, they didn't ask for targets and they didn't have metrics attached to their programs, although they did ask their grantees to report numbers. What they did was they provided testing kits to their grantees and they integrated their testing into a broader regimen of care that involved social and emotional and other forms of support. It was a sort of an accompaniment process, right, whereby these community organizations really created these strong bonds and social networks with the people that they were working with. And the reason they designed their project this way is because one of the things Jonah was telling me was that their inspiration for this project was early on, he would hear from all these activists how no one was supporting them. They couldn't get any resources. And yet they didn't know what to do about how to figure out how many people in their community were HIV positive. No one wanted to go to public health centers. And so the community itself was really stymied by the sense of powerlessness, by the sense of defeat. 
And so one of the things that Jonah wanted to do with testing is he said that he always imagined testing as a tool of empowerment. And he deeply, deeply believed that. He saw testing as a way for men to take control of their sexual lives, to take control of their sexual narratives. And he promoted peer testing as an alternative to getting tested at government venues. So to him, testing was important to MSM because it to make it accessible was a way for them to care for each other as a community, to build solidarities and to really empower individuals and communities. So I think that's sort of the other side of right why testing has become so important to MSM. So as important as MSM became for testing, I think testing also became pivotal to um, really generating practices of care among MSM. And you mentioned the health fund having targets. Mm-hmm. Why is it mm-hmm. then that the health fund ran into so many problems with their testing initiatives? Um, that's a great question. And they did run into many problems um, with their testing. So let me explain a little bit first about how their testing worked. Um, the way that it worked was testing was primarily outsourced to community organizations, right? On the assumption that they were embedded in the community and they had better access to this, um, this population. So what would happen is these organizations would submit proposals to their local government intermediary because all international projects in China have to go through the government. No one is allowed to implement projects directly. So when organizations would submit their proposals, they would have to detail all of these different targets, right? So they would have to say, I anticipate reaching this number of MSM for testing. I anticipate reaching this many number of MSM for testing. X, Y, and Z, they would have to detail all their different activities and the targets. So these targets were then measured against the actual number they met, which all had to be verified by the Chinese CDC. And only when the Chinese CDC verified it were were they then paid. So these organizations received, as I mentioned earlier from performance-based financing, sort of predetermined amounts for each target um, reached. The other part of this financing was that the health fund offered additional bonuses for certain things. So for example, um, every person you referred to testing, you got X amount of dollars. If that person turned out to be HIV positive, you received a bonus on top of that. And oftentimes the bonus was like two or three times more than the incentive amount, right? So there were really generous bonuses. And there were all these bonuses offered for different kinds of activities. So that's sort of the the context of how how the performance-based financing worked. So there were different types of problems that emerged from the health fund's testing initiatives. On the one hand, they ended up having to deal with operational issues, things like repeat testers, men who were referred to different different and multiple sites to get tested because they were known to be HIV positive because you receive an additional bonus if the person is HIV positive, so they would get sent to all of these different testing sites so they could collect more bonuses, right? Um, Another issue was that in some instances, grantees were actually splitting their incentives with the person getting tested. So I remember on one visit I was taking with um, the health fund, we were talking to a volunteer from a grantee organization. I was just having casual conversation with them. And then he happened to mention that their organization took half the initiative and gave the other half to the person getting tested right in front of the health fund staff who did not know that this was actually happening. So um, it was a surprise. I saw the surprise on the staff member's face. They were like, you're doing what now? 
Um, so it was a very awkward, very awkward moment. And I felt very awkward because I was like, that was not my intention. I was just having a conversation. But these are the things that happen in the field, right? Um, so for these kinds of issues, I think partly it was an issue of conflicting stakes, right? So the health fund had a very vested interest in delivering results. They designed their entire HIV program on the basis of being results results driven. So they needed to be able to show evidence of the value and the effectiveness of their interventions. But the metrics they used put enormous pressure on community organizations to meet these performance targets to get funding. If they didn't hit those numbers, they risk not getting future contracts. And this is something I constantly heard from grantees that they were under so much pressure to generate numbers. And at times, their push to generate numbers came at the expense of actually delivering other forms of care and services to their community. And so they were sort of stuck in between this, um, a rock and a hard spot. And the more problems like repeat testers popped up, the more they reinforced the need for even more accountability metrics, right? Because then the health one would say, see, this is happening. Now we need to institute more accountability metrics. So I think, but I think that this issue is actually linked to the way that community organizations operate within China. And this is part of, I think, the importance of understanding the broader social, political, and economic context in where you're working, right? I think this actually speaks to one of the problems of the assumed transportability of interventions that you can sort of move them from place to place. Because in China, the, the government has historically had a really strained relationship to non-state actors and especially community organizations. Any organizations that do any kind of advocacy work, any kind of work with sensitive populations or any organizations that are primarily funded by international donors. But in the HIV sphere, international funding has for the most part made up the bulk of support for years and years. And they directed their money specifically to community and grassroots organizations, not government entities, right? And so starting in about the mid to late 2000s, most of the international donors started pulling out of China especially with HIV. And at the time that I was there doing field work was when the Global Fund actually ended up closing its doors. And they had been like a key funder for years. So when the Global Fund left, a lot of these community groups basically just shut down, right? They just had no more source of funding and the government wasn't exactly forthcoming with support. So in this context where funding itself from day to day is so precarious, I think the incentive to meet your targets takes on a whole different meaning, right? Um, so that was one set of problems. I think the other set of problems the health fund faced was low testing rates across a lot of their program sites. And a lot of these places tended to be the smaller, more second tier cities where social expectations for men are much more acute. And here I think we have to then go back to your earlier question about sexuality and making up MSM. You're targeting a group of men who don't identify as or with same-sex categories, who live heterosexual lives and don't see themselves at risk for HIV. So they're unlikely to come to a community organization to get tested. I think the other reason they ran into these problems is that in many of these second-tier cities, there is really no sense of community to which MSM could belong. And in the book, I describe this one activity where a community organization hosted an event to mobilize MSM to get tested. And basically what they did is they set up a small HIV testing station outside the only gay club in town. 
And as an entrance fee, they ask people for an HIV test. So instead of paying an entrance fee, you just get tested. And they did this activity with the local Chinese CDC who was there to actually administer the testing. And so you have these men lining up to get tested just to get into a club, not because they understood the reason behind getting tested, not because they were concerned about their HIV risk, most likely not even because they thought that they might have HIV, right? And so in this context, testing sort of just becomes this very technical act of drawing blood, not as a practice of caring for the self. And I think that was really key. Um, Emerson can't be moved to action if they don't see themselves as belonging to a wider community where testing is made meaningful as an act of caring for the self. And I think this was a challenge for many of the health funds program sites because people viewed their initiative as just a way to test as many people as possible to meet the targets, not to provide any sort of meaningful forms of care. And in turn, staff at the health fund often complained to me that people just saw them as a bank, not as an organization that was actually trying to prevent HIV. Um, So, you know, there is this different kinds of perceptions. I do want to say one thing, though, is even though the health fund encountered all of these different types of problems with their testing, it doesn't mean that the program failed. And if anything, I would argue that their initiatives, despite the caveats, actually succeeded in um, very important and unexpected ways. They made really important institutional inroads. So their use of performance metrics have actually been integrated into the public health system, at least in relation to how HIV is being carried out. Testing is now a favored HIV intervention by the Chinese CDC. And I remember talking to a friend who told me how successful the health fund has been with their program because they managed to institutionalize testing and performance metrics into the government system. And I think by doing this, this speaks to how these kinds of practices can reshape what counts in prevention and care. It can validate technical solutions that are divorced from their social and cultural context. And the risk of that, I think, is it marginalizes the very hard and unmeasurable work of care that I think becomes so important in programs to address HIV and especially vulnerable vulnerable communities like MSM. And so now, could you talk a bit about self-affirmation projects and how they work? Yes. Um, So the self-affirmation projects, is the Chinese term, And it loosely translates to self-identity, but I think that's a bit of a misnomer. It actually refers more to self-affirmation in the sense of really accepting oneself. Um, And as I talk about in the book, these initiatives actually played a really pivotal role in making up MSM. So I do remember the first time I encountered this project. Um, It was my first month into long-term fieldwork in Beijing. So I was still finding my bearings. And Jonah from the AIDS in China Fund called me up one night and invited me to a workshop they were having, which happened to be a self-affirmation session. And so I had nothing planned that night. So I said, sure, let's go. So when we went, there was a group of men and we ended up breaking up into three smaller groups um, because of the number of participants. 
And I ended up staying in the room um, with about 15 or so men, including Jonah, who was facilitating. And I just remember everyone sort of, we sat in a circle and we just sort of went down one by one and everyone just started telling these um, really personal stories about um, intimate moments of their lives. Um, Luckily, I did not have to which was great. I was terrified when it came to me. Um, but as, as everyone was sharing these stories, you could just feel this kind of intimacy starting to form, right? And I think that that's really at the crux of these self-affirmation projects, that it's, it's cultivating this community and this intimacy between participants that not only gives them a support network, but it also affirms their same-sex desires, right? And so the way that Jonah, who's one of the architects of this project for AIDS and China Fund, explained it to me is that he says, when men accept their desires, then they're more likely to respect themselves and act responsibly by using condoms, for example, to protect themselves. And so these projects are really about helping men get there. And it's worth noting that most of the men in this meeting and in the other self-affirmation projects that I um, participated in, they were almost all married to women and have children, right? They live publicly as heterosexual men. So the point of this project is not to disrupt those lives, or it's not even really to change them. It's certainly not to out them or help them come out. That's not the goal. It's just to help them develop a positive view of themselves and a positive view of sex, Um, and their desires that might mitigate risky behaviors. So the way that these projects worked, at least with the AIDS in China Fund, is that they involved a series of weekly sessions among a small cohort of men, um, usually about 10 to 15. And each week is organized around a very specific predetermined topic. So for example, um, one week they'll talk about your first sexual experiences, or another week they'll talk about their public and private personas and how they navigate these different kinds of lives. Um, The idea is that these sessions really provide a safe space for men to talk openly about their desires through this shared intimacy to develop a positive view about sex and especially same-sex sexual relations that will help them make safe sexual choices. So, I mean, in, in some ways, this project is similar to the the other kind of coming out programs that you saw early days in the epidemic, right? Things like um, the greater involvement of people living with HIV promoted by UNAIDS, where people living with HIV publicly disclose their status. But in this case, it's men who have sex with men publicly sharing their sexual desires and experiences with others, but also their missteps, right? It, it's also a sort of reflection of their their sexual choices. And other anthropologists have written about how these these kinds of activities do different kinds of work, right? So they help to consolidate and responsibilize the self. And I think this is where self-affirmation played such an important role in cultivating selfhood among men who have sex with men. These sessions sort of did the double duty of both consolidating these individual and collective selfhoods as MSM, and responsibilizing them by reflecting on their missteps and thinking about how they can make safer sexual choices. Um, But again, I want to clarify that the self-affirmation, again, was not to out people. 
right? Or even have them admit to any sexual identity. It was just about validating um, their sexual desires for these men. And I think in a way what Jonah envisioned when he started this project was that it would become a tool for empowerment. It would be a way for men to empower themselves by accepting their desires and taking control of their sexual lives. I think this book has something for everyone. You talk about queerness, you talk about health, you talk about economics, identity, kinship. Uh, Before letting you go, there is one final question. It's a tradition on the New Books Network, and I always have to ask, what are you working on now? Yeah, so um, I am one of the things that I'm fascinated by is how things travel. Um, Because this book is really about looking at how global health practices and ideas and interventions really travel across different social and cultural contexts and what they do as they travel. And so my next project um, continues this thread of how things travel. So I'm working, um, I'm actually collaborating for the first time with a colleague. You know, in anthropology, we usually do single, um, you, you research alone. So this time... I'm working with a colleague, which I'm very excited about, um, on tracking how cancer travels. So we're looking at how knowledge and cultural beliefs about breast cancer travel among Chinese immigrants across Taiwan and the U.S. and how these ideas shape the experiences of women. Um, And we have a particular interest in Taiwan because it is a place where biomedicine and complementary and alternative medicine coexist and they're used equally in medical care. But um, both my colleague and I have a lot of personal experiences with this topic. And it was always interesting to me to listen to my Chinese relatives talk about breast cancer and the way they understood it, not as a biomedical phenomenon, but as part of their social worlds and specifically their social relationships, right? It was not a medical thing. It was always a social thing for them. And I think this understanding shaped the way that they approached and treated their cancer. Um, So we're very interested in sort of tracking how those ideas and beliefs and knowledges sort of travel back and forth um, across um, different places and different spaces as well. So we're in the preliminary stages right now, but we are excited about doing that field work. And previously, I had been working on a China-Africa project to track Chinese global health interventions in Africa. But because of the pandemic and the inability to travel at that time, that project could put a hold. So I'm hoping that at some point I'll be able to restart that project again, if and when any of this ends. So, yeah. Fabulous. And I would love to have you back on the program for both of those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I'd love to come back. The book is Commodities of Care, published in 2021 with the University of Minnesota Press. Check it out. Professor Elsa Elfan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.